Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. Joining me on this episode is legendary bass guitarist Leland Sklar. After starting his career playing alongside greats like James Taylor and Carole King, Leland has gone on to become one of the most sought-after session musicians in the music world, having played on more than 2,000 records, including those from the likes of Phil Collins, Barbara Streisand, Robbie Williams, Rod Stewart, Diana Ross. I mean, I could sit here for the next 20 minutes and reel off household names. It really is something. We sat down to discuss his incredible career and of course discover the worst gift he's ever been given. No spoilers, but this bad gift story really is one worth listening to. So Leland, thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's such a great honor to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't tell you what a treat this is for me too. So I want to go right back to the beginning, if you don't mind. So was music always sort of a big part of your early life? And what was early life like? Uh, yeah, I, I grew up, in, it wasn't necessarily a musician's household, but my parents had a very extensive and eclectic record collection. And uh, so I was exposed to a lot of different music, classical and um, kind of tiki lounge, you, know, you name it. It was all those kind of different things. Um, and uh, when I was about four years old, my parents used to watch a TV show that was called The Liberace Show. And Liberace was, he was kind of what Elton became, uh-huh. you know, he was a theatrical pianist. And, uh, and I used to watch that show and became enamored with it. And by the time I was five, I was studying classical piano. And, and I played classical piano up till when I was 12 years old, went into junior high school when I was 12, and assuming I would be the orchestra's piano player. And uh, they said, we have plenty of piano players, we need a string bass player. Ah. And, and uh, the music teacher pulled out an old K upright, put it in my hands, and I plucked it, played, heard, felt one vibration running through my body, and I said, sold. I'm, I'm your bass. And, and I never looked back. I, at that point, piano kind of fell to the wayside. I really was kind of burned out with it and just focused on, on bass. But my whole upbringing was around really good music. We had a, uh, an old Magnavox hi-fi when I was a kid. And it had, you know, and they had just, I would sit there and just put record on after record and just listen to music all the time. So I was pretty immersed in it. I understand one of your early breaks was playing alongside James Taylor. How did that opportunity come about? I was in college uh, from 65 to 19, from 1965 to 1970, I was in college. Around 19, late 68, um, 69, I was in a band in Los Angeles called Wolfgang. And our drummer, who was English, he was actually uh, in Jackie Lomax and The Undertakers, um, who were rivals of the Beatles back in, in the 60s. Um, he had a friend that used to come to our rehearsals named John Fishbeck and John Fishbeck did all of the early Stevie wonder records, like songs in the key of life and stuff. He had a studio called crystal recording studios. Um, he came to one of our rehearsals one day and brought a friend to his and it was James Taylor because they were lifetime friends. And James had just gotten back from England where he had done his first Apple album. So I met James at our band rehearsal. And, uh, and we hung out for a day and it was great. And that was it. And then he got an offer to play the Troubadour in Los Angeles. 
and they needed a bass player. And he remembered me from this rehearsal uh -huh. and Peter Asher, who was managing him, uh, tracked me down. And, uh, and I thought I was playing one gig with the guy and basically it turned into the rest of my life. <laughs> you just never know, you know, these things happen and you just go with it. I walked out of college, never told anybody I was leaving and never got my degree. And just, I've been working ever since. Incredible. I know you also spent a, a period of your career as a member of a section, which was, like, was the house band for Asylum Records. So I wondered how that opportunity came about. And would you remember of that time? When we started with James Taylor, the band was myself, Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, and Carol King was the piano player ah. in the group. And as things started moving along in the first like year and a half, uh, James was encouraging Carol uh, to do some of her own music uh, at the beginning of the show, like an opening act. And people knew uh, of the songwriting team of Goffin and King, but they didn't realize that the King side of it was this young girl. I mean, she was writing hit records when she was a teenager at the, in the Brill building. So um, we, that was the band, but then she went in the studio and cut tapestry uh -huh. And needless to say, we had a band member who had the biggest record in the world practically <laughs> at that point. So Carol left and I was doing an album project with uh, an, uh, an artist. It was Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. Mimi Farina was Joan Baez's younger sister. And on that session was a keyboard player named Craig Durge. And I thought he was great. And so I contacted Peter Asher and I said, I think we found somebody to replace Carol. And Craig came in and that was really, that what became the section. And, um, and, and, and it really was one of these things we, we, we recorded with James, but we ended up being the road band too. And, um, and then it was a period that we're all very thankful to Peter Asher because Peter insisted that our names appear on James's albums where with the wrecking crew previously, they never got album credit. So, people would be listening to the mamas and the papas and, and Frank Sinatra and the Tijuana brass and all these groups never realizing it was the same group of musicians playing on everything. So we, our names were on it and, and James was really the forefront of the singer songwriter movement. And so anytime somebody like Jackson Brown or any of these people were getting uh, signed to a label, they would look at James's record, see our names on it. And they said, well, let's get those guys, you know, look what they did for James kind of a thing. And, uh, and it was off and running, but I mean, I can be real long in the tooth when I'm giving these answers here. Um, but we were on the road and, and James normally really wasn't that into doing big sound checks. He would do a line check and then he went off and just did whatever he wanted to do. And we were all so horny to play that we would just sit and jam all the time. And eventually uh, somebody played us a tape and, they, and we said, man, that's great. Who's that? And they went, that was you guys today. That was your soundtrack. <laughs> and they, they, you know, said, you know, you guys ought to think about being a band. And James uh, is the one who, he said, look, you guys, you're the rhythm section. So why don't you just call it the section? And, uh, and we, we never had any critical success. We had underground success, but I think when we were signed, they had an expectation of the artists that we worked with, that we would be like the Eagles or something like that. And here we bring them a, an instrumental rock fusion band. So, uh, so, you know, we've got a cult following to this day, but, uh, but we never had the critical success like so many of the artists, but now 
all these 50 years later, we've got a band called the immediate family, which is two, th three, or it's, well, it's Cooch and Russ and myself and Waddy Wachtel and Steve Postel and Waddy had joined up with uh, James Taylor in the seventies too. He was part of the band. So um, we've all been together forever and it's a, it's, it's a funny journey. You know, it's been really great though. Incredible. I wanted to touch a little bit, Leland, on your work as a session musician. I wanted to yeah. sort of understand more about the process. Do you do you get any informational sort of parts of tracks in advance, or is it a case of you turn up at the studio and that's the first you sort of hear the track you've got to play on? I would say 95% of the time, I don't know what I'm working on until I walk in the door. Oh, really? Um, we're never sent anything in advance. Wow. Um, so I don't know. I don't even know the genre necessarily. I, it could be country. It could be funk. It could be, you know, jazz. It could be anything. And that was really the, um, the fascinating part because I never really thought of, I was going to be a studio musician. You know, I, I was in college studying to be uh, either a technical or maybe a medical illustrator. And because oh. my real aptitude was in science and in art. And I always played music. I always figured I would play music, but I didn't anticipate that I would actually have a career at it. Uh -huh. um, so once we started um, with James, I had never really been in a studio before. And all of a sudden, I was doing four sessions a day, you know, you know six days a week. And, uh, and we were basically teaching ourselves how to be studio musicians on the job. But over the course of the years... Um, every once in a while, like somebody might send something, say, you know, maybe check this out and see what you think. Nowadays, it's more difficult um, because so many people have home studios that when they're getting ready to do the record, they spend a year making their demos. And then you'll suddenly hear it. And it sounds like a finished record already, where like with James, he would sit and play guitar. Jackson would play guitar and piano. And we would figure all our parts out. People sit around now trying to figure them all out. And they say, well, just use it as a guide, you know, and you're going, you've thought about this in the minute you move away from it. They go, well, you know, that part there, I kind of like what I did. And you're going, <laughs> just use what you got. I don't know. It's, 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 it's morphed into a kind of an interesting uh, experience, but pretty much we always, man, we were flying by the seat of our pants. You'd show up, you'd get the call, say, you know, be it at A&M at 10 o'clock Monday morning. And you'd walk in the door, didn't know who the other guys were going to be on the date and didn't know the artist or anything. Wow. And, uh, and you would start making music. It's incredible. And, uh, and you know, it all went great. You touched on genres there. And I wondered, having played across so many genres, is that ever a challenge for you? There's an element that has to uh, accommodate um, each. Well, there, there's a part of you that has to accommodate each and every song, regardless of the genre. Um, but, you know, if I'm playing country, I, I might think it's slightly different than I would be doing if I was doing a hip hop record. Uh -huh. um, but um, basically my playing is kind of consistent through all the genres and, and really without trying, I managed to find a sound and, and a style that seems to accommodate so many different, um, genres that I don't have to like jump through hoops to, um, to, to do a different one, but I listen to enough music where I'm cognizant of, you know, stylistically what's going on in different genres so that when I, when I show up, I can honor that and and not be sitting there playing a country bass part on like a jazz fusion record you know i i, I know i know what's needed when, when i get there and uh and i try to be i try to be true to the style and i try to be true to myself because i don't want to sound like i'm bullshitting when i'm playing 
So we've reached that part of the show, Leland, where I have to ask you, what is the worst gift you've ever received? Well, I'll tell you, I've, I, you know, there's times where you get those gifts and it, you're re-gifting things and all that, just going like in there. But the weirdest gift I ever got is I have a hot rod, uh-huh. uh, high performance car. And the, one of the machinists that I was working on the car with um, was, an, you're never an ex, but he, he was a hell's angel. And, but you give him a block of T6 aluminum and two hours later, you would have a manifold. I mean, the guy was a brilliant machinist. And one, one time for Christmas, he gave me, uh, there was a company called Crower that makes camshafts. So he gave me this box um, and it was a Crower camshaft. And I went, well, I don't really need a camshaft. I don't know why the hell he gave me this thing. And I opened it up. It was a sawed off, it was a little shotgun about this big that would blow a hole about the size of a refrigerator through you. Wow. I mean, the the numbers had been filed off and all. (laughs) I mean, it was so illegal. It was unbelievable. And I just sat there and gave me a box of shells and all this. I'm not a gun guy. And I, I, so I I stuck it in my basement for ages. And then a friend of mine uh, from Minnesota, a, a school teacher, he came back and I was showing it to him and he said, Oh, this is fantastic. Are you kidding? I said, it's yours. And I gave it, I gave it to him. I said, just get it. I mean, if I, if you got caught with that thing, it's serious jail. Time. Oh, I'm sure. But it was one of these weird things. I'm thinking I'm opening up a camshaft box and out pops a sawed off shotgun. So that was probably one of the weirdest gifts I've ever, I've ever gotten. <laughs> If you look back through the number of albums you played on, it, it's quite incredible. It's probably easier to name albums you haven't played on rather than yeah. albums you have done. Which ones for you stand out as the most memorable? Well, there's so many of them. It, once again, crossing genres. But still, one of my favorite records I ever got to work on was Spectrum with Billy Cobham. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's still, you know, we cut that in 1973. Pretty much we did that record in two days. Wow. Um, and it's still like every time I see Jeff Beck, he comes up and he sees me and he goes, Stratus, man, Stratus, <laughs> which is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of the quintessential songs of that, that jazz fusion period. Tommy Bolin was playing guitar and it was one of the greatest guitar players ever. And Jan Hammer and, and, and Billy Cobham and myself, that still always stands out. And if I go in a studio and I start to play, man, guys jump all over it. It's the thing that everybody played and listened to. So that's great. But, you know, I, I love like all the stuff I've done with Phil Collins. Um, you know, I love playing. There's records like Joshua Judge's Ruth with Lyle Lovett's great. Um you know, Gorilla in the Pocket, flag all the James Taylor records, and certainly the first Jackson Brown album with Doctor My Eyes and and songs like that. But you know, I, I spent a lot of time working in Nashville, so some albums I did with people like Vince Gill and Reba McIntyre and uh, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard, all those people. They each have a you know, it's kind of like your children. You know, I I really, when I get involved in a project, I kind of treat the project like I've joined a band, you know, and, and I treat it with, as though this is my band and and I want it to be the best it can be. I've never showed up at a date and just gone through the motions, just collect my check and get out. Um, So uh, it's kind of hard, but I've done about 2,600 albums 
So, you know, I mean, trying to dig through that into <laughs> favorites, uh, it's hard. But and every once in a while, I hear something that like I, I've got a YouTube channel. And uh, this morning I, I did a, um, a Joe Cocker song that I recorded. And man, it's like you get in the studio with Joe Cocker. You put your headphones on, you hear one note out of the guy's voice and you go, man, that's so Joe Cocker. You know, I'm still an uber dorky fan about all of it too. So I get, I get really excited about that. You mentioned your YouTube channel there and I was going to come on to that because I know you, you've recently taken to YouTube amid the uh, pandemic lockdown. So what prompted the decision and how have you found it so far? I always want, you know, I, I'm kind of an insomniac. I, I'm always up really, really late. I, I go to sleep about three and I'm usually up between 5.30 and 6. <laughs> I don't sleep that much. So a lot of nights I sit and just go through YouTube because there's so much stuff on it that's really, you know, fun. I, I'll pick a song and then I'll find like 20 different versions of it just to see how different people, you know, listen to things. So what happened was we had just finished just before the pandemic, really, a few months before that we finished, we had done a, a tour with Phil Collins um, called the Not Dead Yet Tour. Uh-huh. And uh, we were out off and on for close to two and a half years. And people, a couple of guys had written to me and they said, man, we saw you in Sao Paulo, but, you know, it's like an 80,000 seat stadium kind of thing. And they said, we could hear the bass because we had a great front of house guy, Michelle Collin, a remarkable front of house mixer. But they said, we couldn't hear all the details in it. So I thought um, I had them send me, uh, I had Michelle send me a board mix of our, our show, one of the shows that was from Adelaide, Australia. And so what I did was I, I plugged a little um, Bose speaker into my laptop and then I have a bass amp on the floor. So what I did was I played the board mix and then played the bass, putting the bass on top of the track so you could hear every note. And I just said, um, every day I'm going to post another song, one of the songs and do the whole show in order so you can see exactly what the bass parts are. About three songs into it, people started writing going, man, we love your YouTube channel. And I went, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, oh, no, you know, that channel now that you've got going. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about because I thought I was just putting up some videos. I didn't realize it had suddenly turned into a channel. And, and at this point now, um, I did all of Phil's stuff and, um, and I'm just every day I'm finding other songs I've worked on and playing them and telling stories about um, the experience and who was on the stuff and, and letting people like backstage with all of it. And there's several hundred videos up now. And there's about, I mean, I haven't really pushed it at all. And I've got, I think 134,000 people on my channel. Incredible. And so it's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm having a, a wonderful time because the pandemic, as soon as that hit, I basically looked at for at least a year, my book went from completely full to completely empty. Yeah. And I kind of thought like so many, like every other musician, I mean, everything just went away. And I kind of thought I could either get incredibly depressed and, you know, and roll over with this, or I have to figure out something to do to still feel viable. And so this has been great. And within the YouTube channel, I created a thing called Lee's Clubhouse and people have joined that. And I do a couple of live streams. I just did it yesterday. I do two live streams a month. Um, and then there's an, like an elite level of that where people, uh, I, I do one-on-one either Skype or Zoom, uh, Skype or FaceTimes with them for about 20 minutes. And, uh, 
and that's great. And then I made a gift shop and I'm so doing t-shirts with picture, you know, my picture and signing autographs. And so I just kind of looked at this period and went, man, how can I make myself still feel um, like I'm in the business? Cause so many people uh, I'm talking to so many players every day and they're just at this point, cause music will be the last thing to come back. Sure. They'll get, they'll get sports back and yeah. they'll get restaurants and all that. But the idea of so many of the venues, it, it, they're not, they're not going to be able to support themselves. Say it holds, you know, 4,000 people, but they're only going to let a thousand or 750 people in financially. They can't do it. So I really don't know what the future is going to be like. And I, and rather than waiting for it, I just said, hell with it. I'm just going to figure some, some things out to do. And that's, I'm in the middle, I'm busier than I've ever been, <laughs> but I'm not making any money practically, but I feel alive. And that's the most important thing to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now do, do check out the YouTube channel because it is great. I, I checked it out earlier on, really enjoyed the stuff on there. When I was doing some research and I typed your name into Google, something that came up, it said, uh, Leland Sklar joins the Warwick family. And that made me laugh because Warwick is my surname. Yeah, as soon as I saw your name came through, I went, <laughs> oh man, it's, 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 it's one of the family. <laughs> now, I'm afraid I, I have no link to, to the bass guitars at all, but I, I was interested in uh, the process and involvement of the creation of your signature bass and how much sort of creative input you have in that. I had a lot. Um, uh, the way I got got involved with Warwick was um, every year, Bass Player Magazine would have Bass Player Live out. You, sometimes it was in New York, but usually it was in Los Angeles. And it's a showcase for like all these different companies showing off their gear, kind of like a mini NAM show. Um, but then they would have like an award evening where they would give like two lifetime achievement awards. And um, there would be like a big jam where all the players would get up and play and all this stuff. Um, when I when I went to it a, a number of years ago, Warwick always had a pretty big footprint in the gear section. And uh, there was nobody in the room. I got there really early and I went in and there was a, a, a star bass too, which is their semi hollow body bass. And it was a fretless. And I just sat down and played it and I fell in love with it. And I thought this was really a nice instrument, but, I left at, after the thing. I just moved on. And Steve Bailey, who's the uh, head of the uh, bass department at Berkeley College of Music, uh, we've been friends for years. And I was on tour with Lyle Lovett. And, we, and, he, and Steve was down at his home in North Carolina. And we were going to be playing North Carolina. So I invited him to the show. And when he came to the show, he brought that bass. He said, I told Hans Peter you love that bass. And he sent me one. And uh, I went, so I, I called Hans and thanked him profusely for this. And that was the beginning of a, a friendship and a relationship. So I love the, the Starbase too. It's a really beautiful instrument, but there were a few things on it that I thought, well, if I was, you know, had a chance, I would change a couple of things. And um, Martin, who uh, is like one of the main design guys at, at, at Warwick, um, we got together on it and talked about all the modifications um, that I would do. It's Martin Spangler is his name. And um, so we ended up doing this bass that just we modified the body slightly. Um, and it's not a hollow body like the, the um, star bass because the modifications I wanted on the bass, you couldn't do on a hollow body. So he did a chambered body where we actually 
had areas where we could shape the wood. And then once it was all shaped, then chamber it out and then put the, the top on it. And uh, it's a beautiful instrument. I, I just love it. And I've used it a ton in the studio. But I also still use the star bass. I really like that one, too. So, But it's been a really wonderful. I've, I've got two signature basses. Um, and, and I'm not a, a gear whore, so, you know, they're, it's not like I'm hustling, you know, instruments, but I, I've been with uh, Dingwall, uh, basses for about 18, 19 years now. And so my, I have a signature model with Dingwall and, and that's a five string. My Warwick is only a four string and I didn't want to do anything where they would be competing with each other. And so they're two very different basses and, um, and I'm really proud of both of them. They're both great companies to work with, and uh, and it's been really nice. Uh, it's it's a really nice kind of contributing to the development of instruments. I don't I don't get paid anything for doing those. I did them without remuneration because I said it's more important to develop the instrument. And if I'm not committed financially, then my word really doesn't become a commercial. It's what I really believe. <laughs> Leland, wrapping up, if you had to go right back to the beginning of your musical journey and buy yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? You know, the one thing I wish I could have added to my career, and I regret it to this day, is I wish I would have had a camera from the very first session I've done. Interesting. Um, and, I, and I could have taken a picture of the artist, the producer, the studio, the engineer, the players. So many are gone. Studios are gone. People have died. To have had even an Instamatic, to have had just a camera every day just to say, just walk around, document it. You know, in the beginning, I never saw the, thought there was a career, you know, in, in the future. You're, uh-huh. you're, you're, you're living in the moment. But now looking back on 50 years, it would have been a pretty incredible collection to have had. And finally, Leland, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Well, they they can come join my YouTube channel. That would be great. Um, I'm on Facebook under my name also. And I'm going to be creating um, a website. I've never had a website, but one of the things I've done through the pandemic is when we were doing the first final farewell tour with Phil Collins back in 2004, I ended up through a set of circumstances getting pictures of everybody on the tour giving me the finger. (laughs) I had over 11,000 photographs of people all over the world giving me the finger. Well, I just finished doing a coffee table book. Wow. And it's about 6,000 photographs in it. And I should have them in hand by the end of November. So it's a perfect Christmas gift. I'm going to be putting up a Kickstarter program and stuff. It's a beautiful book big um, coffee table book. And uh, so I will be creating a a, a website uh, where I'll be taking care of all this stuff. So, but YouTube, you can message me on YouTube and on Facebook. Um, I, I and I'm the guy who responds to everything. I'm not one of these people that has an assistant pretending they're me. Okay. Everything, everything I do on any of those social media is me. I'm on Instagram and Twitter also, but Um, I don't like Twitter particularly. I'm too long-winded for those short sentences. (laughs) I'd rather just ramble on and on, as you obviously can tell. (laughs) Well, Leland, it's been great to have you here. Thanks so much for stopping by. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And this is, I've got my Warwick sitting next to me here, and I've got my Warwick right there in front of me (laughs) on the screen. I'm in stereo today. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BadGiftsPod, as well as online at BadGiftsPod.com. International Podcast Day is September 30th, and you can help spread the word. You may be asking, what can I do to get involved? It's pretty simple. Head over to internationalpodcastday.com and check the suggestions. Then use hashtag International Podcast Day to join the conversation. You can reach out and connect with other podcasters, listeners, and your favorite podcast hosts. Remember September 30th, International Podcast Day, a day-long celebration of the power of podcasts.